You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. If you knew in your heart and in your mind that someone took your child's life, how far would you go to get to the truth? I think they hung him up to make it look like a suicide. It looked like a back-in-the-day lynching. His body would be hung in the courthouse square for all to see. All white folks are invited to the party. Lynching was a message crime. They happened in places where the body would be seen. And it's the public nature of lynching that really condemns the white community. Because the idea that people didn't know, they did know. As I started researching black males committing suicide in public over the last few years, I became quite concerned that there may be a bigger surreptitious movement at play here. The caption, last night picked before the game. That does not sound like a person that was planning on killing himself. Any injustice affects everybody that's around it. So we don't want anything in the dark. Bring it to the light. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, we're talking to Jacqueline Olive, the director of Always in Season. It is a very hard-hitting documentary about lynching, historical lynching, and also the current problem of lynching in the United States. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, so I'm a southerner. Um, I uh, lived there until I was 18. I was born in Chicago, um, grew up in Mississippi, and my family goes back generations between Chicago and Mississippi. My mom was born in Mississippi and grew up in in Chicago, and it just goes back and forth that way for generations. And how did you get interested in filmmaking? Uh, I got interested through still photography. I actually... So I, um, as a child, I wanted to be um, a psychologist and I went to grad school um, and studied psychology. And, and so for most of my life, I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then got to grad school and realized that, you know, after doing a little bit of uh, therapy, I realized that that's not, it, it wasn't, uh, it didn't exactly suit me. And so I spent years figuring out, uh, trying different things and figuring out what it is that I wanted to do as a career. And so I did a number of things. I was an on-air uh, DJ for um, a radio station, and I worked for an airline, and I was a firefighter right before I um, decided to study documentary film. I had been taking photographs of my son and really just fell in love with the ability of an image, not just to document what happened, like in a snapshot, but to really convey the feeling of a moment was really powerful for me. And so I... Um, worked in news. I, I shot uh, a news sports and weather for an NBC affiliate as a cinematographer um, and did that for a few years and then realized I wanted to do long-form storytelling and study documentary film at the University of Florida Stock Institute. Oh, that's fantastic. What a wild and varied career you had. It's, it's wild and varied. I feel like I've, li- I've lived a lot of lifetimes and, and um, I've lived in most parts of the U.S. and um, in a lot of places. And uh, it's really all helped to inform not just who I am, but, but my film, my filmmaking and storytelling. Well, what was that uh, school like in Florida, and how did they go about teaching you documentary filmmaking? 
Yeah, my, I chose that program for a couple of reasons. One is that I wanted to make um, films for PBS. That was my thinking when I started out and really fell in love with documentaries through watching the Independent Lynn series on PBS. And my professors there um, were doing the same. They made films for, for Independent um, Lynn's uh, Negroes with Guns is one. Um, and they've had a couple of others on PBS. And so it was really important for me to learn from folks who were working in, in the industry in the way that I wanted to. And also it was one of the few graduate programs where you didn't have to, they provided a, um, a budget for your thesis film. You didn't have to come, you didn't have to raise the money yourself or, or come with, uh, with money, which I certainly could not afford because I was a, a single mom in grad school. And, um, and it was really a, a, a wonderful experience. It taught me a lot. The biggest lesson that I learned was that you need to make um, films about things that you're passionate about, about subjects that aren't just quirky or a passing interest, but they need to be subjects that you're, you're passionate about so that it carries you through over the years that it takes to make a documentary film. And at the time I thought um, they were, uh, my professors were saying the average was about two years. And I thought um, two years isn't that bad. And turned out it took me a decade to make always in season. So it was a, it was a really good lesson. Um, and, uh, and it's really held me through from, from development of the project all the way till now as we get it out through impact and engagement and in theaters. Well, what brought you to the subject of Always in Season? And how did that project germinate and become what it eventually became? So when I moved back um, home uh, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in the early 2000s, I saw the exhibit of lynching photographs and postcards called Without Sanctuary Lynching Photography in America. Um, and it's a collection of images of um, the victims of lynching, the men, women, and children who were lynched, and um, photographs of their brutalized body, often surrounded by the proud poses of white men, women, and children who came out to watch the violence. And those images uh, stuck with me. It made me want to think really for the first time about who these people were, what were their stories, the victims, how did they show up in their communities, and come to a place at which their community or most of the community turned on them in that way. I also wanted to learn more about who the spectators were in those images and who the lynchers were, um, because I, as I looked at them, I realized that they looked like they could have been my friends. And my neighbors and folks that I knew, you know, having been from Mississippi, Mississippi is the state with the largest number of lynchings, nearly 600 that are documented. And so I certainly know about racial terrorism in Mississippi, and I knew that, you know, lynching was terrorism. It was really clear. Um, but I didn't know the details um, of the story. But what I do understand is that as friendly as people were um, and still are, um, mostly, um, is that no one really talked about uh, the racial terrorism in the state. There weren't conversations across race about it. And Black people, um, quite frankly, were very much um, focused on moving forward um, and, and advancing. And so there was very little conversation about this terrorism that was really seminal for communities in Mississippi and the South and the rest of the country. You're telling a few stories all at once, and I love the balance between those, talking about the history of lynchings and also looking at the Lennon Lacey case. And I'm curious, when did that uh, come into your life? So even when I look at um, historic lynchings in the film, I'm always looking at it um, through a contemporary lens. And so that from the very beginning, the film has really been about um, what people right now are living with, um, what's the impact um, of the fallout of 
generations of lynching terrorism. And so it's never been a historical film, although the subject certainly involves historical lynchings, but very much about how that's affecting people now. And so quite naturally, out of that comes the story of Lenham Lacey. Um, that's really um, an opportunity to show that thread about how racial violence of the past has evolved into what's going on now. Um, and so I had been filming in Monroe, Georgia, where folks there were doing uh, reenactments, and they still are. They are, there's a group, um, an interracial group of folks who come together um, uh, every July 25th or so on the anniversary of two couples, the Malcolms and the Dorseys, of, the, of their lynching in 1946. They were driven into an ambush on the Moores Ford Bridge and killed. The folks there reenact that lynching for a number of reasons. People come for, for all kinds of personal reasons. There's a woman, Olivia Taylor, who's featured in the film, whose father headed the Klan in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and she has very personal reasons for coming to participate in the reenactments. But everyone agrees that the purpose is to make sure that the victims are never forgotten, that the truth, as folks in that community know it, that that is told. Um, and they believe that some of the perpetrators might still be living there. And so I filmed with them for three years until 2014, until late July 2014, when I thought that I was ready to wrap production. And three weeks later is when I heard about Lennon Lacey's death on August 29, 2014. And he's a 17-year-old. Um, child who was um, found hanging from a swing set in Blatantville, North Carolina. And my son was also 17 at the time, and I cannot imagine what his mother must be going through, not just with the loss of a, of a child in that way, um, but also with the suspicion that he might have been lynched. It had to, I couldn't imagine it. I knew it had to have been devastating. And I reached out just because I wanted to know more about what was going on. Um, and I went there not really knowing whether or not it would be part of the film, but just wanting to be present and understand more about what the community was dealing with. And the more that I talked to folks on the ground, the more I saw the parallels between the horror that they were facing and what's happened historically um, in communities like Monroe around lynching. Was the Lacey family open to you talking with them? They were open. So when I when I first reached out, I spoke with Pierre because Claudia was still uh, very much uh, very deep in grief um, and wasn't able to talk. Um, and so I talked with Pierre, uh, her Lennon's older brother, um, and Pierre. Um, we spent about two weeks just talking about the the specifics about what was going on with Lennon. I was really what had gone on with Lennon and what was going on with her family and what they were dealing with. Um, but I had. I was really struck by how much research he'd done about similar hangings um, in the area and around the country as well. Um, and then probably within a week or two, I began to talk with Claudia um, as well and was just really struck by how open um, she was. They both wanted, they were both open to me telling the story and became increasingly more committed to giving me access and to introducing me to family and really just very openly talking about how, how it's affected them, the pain and the, and the fear and the anger, in addition to their clear commitment to, to find answers into Lennon's death. So what is that like for you as a filmmaker? Here you are pretty much ready to wrap the one film that you're making, and then you branch off into what could ostensibly be a second film. Certainly, it certainly gave me pause. <laughs> I, you know, I was assessing whether or not I should move forward, but I was always really committed to telling this story 
in its entirety. And I understood too that um, because I had moved, I lived in Mississippi um, prior to that from 1998, I'd moved back then and was there for seven years until about 2005. There were probably four cases of young black men found hanging there during that time in the state, during the time that I lived there from their own belt usually. And they were all ruled suicide. So I understood that this was not an anomaly. Um, and I also understood that it was really um, an important way to give uh, immediacy to what I knew were the fallout, what was the fallout of this uh, historic racial terrorism. I understood that there were um, consequences that we hadn't looked at and lessons that we hadn't learned because there's been such silence and cover-up around the history. And so Blayton Burrell really very immediately puts that front and center. Sitting here, 2019, having lived in Detroit pretty much my entire life, the idea of reenactments just always seems so foreign, even though we're in the same country, the whole idea of Civil War reenactments, reenactments of this incident, it just always seems so strange. What was it like for you the first time that you even heard about this reenactment of the lynching? It took me a while, like a, a lot of people, it took me a while to, to wrap my head around it. And it wasn't until I started to think about it in connection to Civil War reenactments that I realized I got a sense of, oh, this is what's going on. Um, and in this, in, in a way that's similar to folks wanting to portray what's happened, um, um, in wars in this country, it's a way to, um, keep educating people about the history and to keep, um, the history and the lessons alive. And it's no different for the, for the reenactors. There, there's controversy around the reenactment um, in Monroe and other places where people um, suggest that, that, that what the, the reenactors are portraying, the folks who are doing it, who, by the way, are amateurs, um, some of them have come to it with no acting experience whatsoever. Um, but the, the, there's um, controversy and there's the argument that they're too graphic. Um, but then if you, again, look at the Civil War reenactments, which um, involves far more violence um, and deaths, uh, numbers of deaths uh, aside from the couples um, who were lynched at Morrisford Bridge, then you can see that even though it is, uh, it may be difficult and challenging, that it comes out of that same spirit of really telling a, a story that is um, as essentially American. Did you witness the reenactment first, or did you go down with camera ready first? I went with camera ready first. I actually went with the camera um, and filmed about mm, two to three months of rehearsals ahead of time. And so it gave me a time, gave time for people to get to know me, and it gave me time to get a sense of um, how the reenactment would unfold, and also just the people um, on the ground and their stories. Um, and, and I always go into a community. Uh, just having conversations before I began filming. So by the time the reenactment unfolded, um, I had gotten to know um, people there for three years. And it's also, it was also really important for me to understand the nuances um, of the stories in the area. There, there have been, uh, there's been media, media coverage at different times around um, these cases as, as, as it is other cases, right? The cases of the Malcolms, the Dorseys, and Monroe, and Lennon, where the media, they'll come in, um, they'll tell a story, and then they'll move on, but I wanted to stay there and make sure that I understood what was going on and understood the dynamics of the story as it evolved over time. And so that's why I spent three years there and I ended up spending in Monroe, I spent three years with the reenactors and ended up spending four years in Bladenboro as Claudia 
fought to get an FBI investigation into Lennon's death and, and then move through, um, move through that case. Well, that also, I'm sure, helps build up trust so you're not just parachuting in, covering the, you know, oh, weirdo reenactors or whatever, and then just boop, pop out and sell your story or, or put the story on 2020 or something. That's right. And there's, you know, there's also been this discussion as I was developing the project of maybe I should just tell this one story. And I agree that, what first of all, I filmed in eight communities around the country, so it took a while to narrow down which stories I wanted to include in the film, the, which um, communities, the, the stories of which communities that were doing work for justice and reconciliation, like the, the reenactors in Monroe. And those certainly could have been their own film, but it was important for me not just to tell a story, a quirky story about this oddity uh, or this unique event that goes on in the U.S. And and I think it's actually the only reenactment uh, of lynching in the world, but certainly in the U.S. And it could have been a quirky story, but it was important for me. It was more important to show, to, to talk about what's going on there, what's going on in other communities around the country around lynching um, in the scope of um, the terrorism present and historically. The camera lens can often be very cold. And I'm curious, when you finally saw that reenactment happen for the first time, what was that experience like for you as a person? Um, you know, I had my I had my director's hat on uh, mostly, and I and I love filmmaking, and I, I understand that it's very important that I show up as a filmmaker in as much as I can every time, because people are counting on me to tell their stories. They're not inviting me there as they would another guest, but they're counting on me to be able to tell the stories um, in a way that is accurate and in a way that um, conveys um, their experiences. And so, given that. Um, I very much was like I had as a director focused on multiple things at one time. As I'm sure you probably know there's about 20 things in every given scene that the director is looking at and paying attention to. And at the same time, the intensity of it certainly came across, across the emotion of it. Um, I could feel as well. And so it's why the film is really cut in a way that's immersive is that I wanted the people to feel the emotions that come through when people are reenacting um, such horrific violence, the emotions of, um, as I mentioned before, pain, anger, fear, guilt, and shame were the same emotions I experienced on the ground. If it wasn't um, in the scene immediately, it certainly happened. It certainly happened when I went back to my hotel and, and when I looked with um, cinematographers at the footage, um, all of those emotions are, was what I was experiencing. And they were a, ref a reflection of what people um, in those communities, including Monroe and in Bladenboro were experiencing as they were dealing with lynching. And they're all natural emotions. And um, I learned that it was important that, um, to acknowledge them and to uh, use them um, to do the work that's needed to be done. So they were that and the way that folks showed up for each other, um, the way that Claudia, for example, um, has almost from the very beginning um, and certainly through to now been very insistent on telling Lennon's story when she could be paralyzed with grief. And so all of that was really inspiring for me as well. The one emotion that just doesn't seem to fit for me is pride and all of those proud faces of the white people in those lynching photos. That is just the strangest thing. And especially when there's a voiceover, it, it, it might be Danny Glover, I'm not sure, that says that there will be postcards available. And it just seems the like the most horrific thing in the world to have these memento mori of these horrific lynchings as keepsakes. 
Yes, Danny Glover did a wonderful job. Um, by the way, he's um, we filmed him and we decided to use just the audio for narration. But if you see him on camera, it's just quite remarkable and intense the way that he portrays the lynchers in that um, in that uh, telegram invitation to the lynching, to the Claude Neal lynching, which happened in Mariana, Florida in 1934. And by the way, um, that bit of documentation is one of several pieces that Danny Glover narrates in the film. But that bit of documentation, that invitation was spread through dozens of newspapers um, on the radio, in radio advertisement and through telegram, inviting people to come out for that lynching. Um, there was a pride in the power dynamics. There's a lot of the American identity around whiteness that's wrapped up in the power dynamics of white supremacy. And when we don't unpack it, the subtleties of what that looks like can be overlooked. They can be missed. And there's so much information um, in understanding how you can have, for example, you can have this seminal violence in which um, immediately after, after um, half the town has come out. Thousands of people have come out to cheer on the violence. The journalists would write in newspapers for people not to talk about a lynching. And people would decide among each other. They would have this kind of tacit understanding that they're not going to call each other out on who was there, um, even when they knew. But you have this seminal, this seminal violence where half the town came out. And when it, there's immediate cover-up, there's immediate silence around um, this violence the very next day, and people m continue to move through their lives, going to church, um, going to their jobs, um, doing all the things that are um, normal. Is you develop this cognitive dissonance, um, and you and it's happened historically, and it's carried on from generation to generation. And so, what it looks like then is not unpacking people, not feeling the the need or the urge or, um, to unpack um, these dynamics around power um, that are really uh, very much still a part of the white identity. Tell me about how you actually take all of this footage that you shot for, what you say, 10 years and bring it down to a very compelling regular length that we're not talking Shoah here. This is like, you know, two hours or less documentary that just punches you right in the face. Interesting that you should mention Shoah because Shoah is one of the films that inspired me early on. Um, probably uh, shortly before I decided to make films, um, is the way that those, uh, the narratives of the survivors of the Holocaust, the dozens of interviews, um, just really echoed each other and helped to verify the details of the violence, in addition to um, really beautifully re reflecting the scope of the terror um, and the horror of, of the Holocaust. Um, and so um, I wanted to do, it was always my, aim um, to, uh, in, in that way, to show the scope of the terrorism in a way that people could really feel it. The biggest challenge was in the edit, was editing the film. I, like I mentioned, I filmed for eight years. I'd researched and developed the project for two years um, before filming. And when I found that there were people on the ground, like the reenactors, looking at justice and reconciliation, I filmed for another eight years. And so by the time we were ready to edit, I had at least a thousand hours of footage. Um, my editors don't like to, to say exactly, um, but I know that there's been at least a, um, a thousand hours of footage. There might be more and there probably is more, but it's the biggest challenge is to then how do you create a narrative that is tight um, and that's resonant and that carries, um, 
carries you through from beginning to end. And and we um, so Don Bernier is the lead edit, editor on the project. He's also um, my writing partner. He's a really brilliant editor. And we had decided that Leighton Burroughs should frame the narrative. Um, and so Claudia begins and ends um, the story. And um, it's uh, it's our faith in her voice. Um, there was a point at which we thought, oh, maybe there'll be text cards at the end. Um, but then I realized that that Claudia's voice um, was strong enough and it was important enough to carry the narrative from beginning to end. And then we just looked at um, how we can bring, and we very, very thoughtfully looked from sequence to sequence almost, at how we can bring um, viewers through the narrative in a way that they are always uncomfortable, but yet having a moment to regroup so that they can be present in the information and then, then bring them back into the experience, the, all of the experiences that, um, that are reflected uh, in those communities. So how does Sundance get involved with this? Sundance has been uh, a really great partner, funding and otherwise. I began uh, uh, doing uh, the Edit Story Lab uh, in July, the probably... July, the year before we finished the film, and uh, it was an amazing experience. I had probably five mentors, and um, but they, they offered five mentors to the group of filmmakers there. But because I was the only filmmaker there without an editor, because I was in between editors and was trying to decide when they reached out to see if I'd like to attend the lab, trying to decide what I was going to do, what my next move would be. Um, I attended the lab without an editor, and it turned out to be um, the best thing um, because because all of the, the mentors, folks like um, Carly Gutierrez, who's a wonderful um, uh, editor of uh, RBG and Chevala, um, and um, uh, Carol Dysinger, um, Rob Moss, and just um, uh, Bill Ross, who's an advisor on the film, is just um, a beautiful filmmaker. But all of those folks really um, helped me to understand how to use footage more cinematically. And so it was a beautiful gift. Um, and after that, uh, I eventually attended the Music Sound Design Lab, where I met Bob Edwards at Skywalker Sound. And Bob Edwards um, did a wonderful job doing the lab. We took 10 minutes of footage and uh, designed sound around that and um, and really fell in love with the film and offered to to offer his talents for the entire feature. So I ended up doing sound design with Bob and um, and the score um, with composer Osea said. And so the music and sound design lab was a great way to understand um, how to work with a sound designer and a composer in a way that really enhances um, the story rather than as some, sometimes will happen is that filmmakers will just hand their, hand their films off and wait for it to come back. Um, but it was a beautiful thing to be able to collaborate in that way. And so Sundance has, um, has funded the film several times. Um, and uh, most recently, we got a creative distribution fellowship um, from Sundance to get the film out in theaters, which we're right in the middle of and really excited about. What is it like for you the first time that an audience sees this? It's really great. And I actually, I uh, we screened it, um, like you said, we premiered at Sundance and probably have screened at at least 40 festivals since, um, in addition to the theatrical screenings. And I've been to almost all of them and I sat through all of them. It's really important. So it's really important to be grounded in the film when we have the panel discussions and the Q&As afterwards, because I really see them as 
um, the first step for the dialogues that we plan to have um, that are more extensive, that are deep dive, three to four hour conversations um, that are facilitated um, with healers present that we plan to have starting in the spring around the television broadcast. Um, and so these um, screenings have been a really great opportunity to begin those conversations. And we plan to bring the film back to all the communities where we've screened and more for deeper dialogue. What are those Q&As like afterwards? They're really great. They're, they're exciting for me because even when I didn't exactly know what the story was going to be about, um, 10 years ago when I was developing and researching the project, I had always imagined that we'd be doing um, what we're doing with the film now, which is giving people the opportunity to talk about um, racial justice, to talk about issues of structural racism, in addition to talking about lynching and racial violence um, and how we can show up um, for dialogues um, that can start to um, really help to build the coalitions that are needed for the work, the work that needs to be done around racial justice. So they're inspiring for me. Has the film shown in Mississippi? It has. Um, we screened at the Oxford Film Festival in Mississippi first. Um, and then we screened in my hometown in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, and we won an award there, which was really um, a, a special honor for me. Uh, Mississippi is really important um, for me in terms of our impact and engagement plans. Um, I, I, it's, I'm committed to bringing the film around the country and particularly to my home state in Mississippi. Um, and the beautiful thing is, is that people have said to me, even when um, they don't necessarily, um, and particularly white folks who don't necessarily feel like the film, those who don't feel like the film is necessarily about them before they see it. Once they see it, they are excited to go home and figure out what their family connections are to lynchings in their communities, to, to ask their grandparents and, and uh, family members about uh, what they know about lynchings in that area. And so that people are making the connections, the personal connections to the story is really important. In addition to the fact that a lot of people have said they're the Q&A conversations for the first time that they've been able to really talk about racism um, in, in that way and so deeply. So it's all very exciting for me. You're playing quite a few dates on the 18th of October, including uh, one of our local theaters here, Cinema Detroit. Are you going to be in attendance for that? I will. I was just talking um, with uh, one of our team members, Mia Bruno, Mia Bruno and Courtney Sheehan have been booking our theatrical um, screenings and we're booked um, for, from the 18th to the 25th at AMCs around the country, including Raleigh-Durham and Dallas, um, Chicago, um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one, but also in Detroit. And so we had, we're actually playing that week in three Detroit theaters. Um, there's a Dearborn AMC, there's a Southfield AMC, um, and there's Detroit Cinema. And I'm going to make as many of those as possible on the 19th, on Saturday the 19th. Well, I look forward to uh, having you in our beautiful city here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I had a great experience when we came in and, um, and screen the film during Freep. Lots of um, uh, organizations have been inspired to partner with us, and so we're looking forward to reconnecting. So do you have your next project already lined up? You know, I do. I'm developing five projects, so um, lined up is a relative word. <laughs> yeah, I have five projects that I'm, I'm looking at developing, including um, one that looks at these other cases, similar to Lennon's, these other deaths. Um, uh, like Lennon's and Heather Radelaide in the film talks about 20 other cases of uh, young Black people that she's found um, hang, have, she's found that have been found hanging 
um, publicly since 2005. And just doing a cursory research in a database, the number is actually closer to 200 cases of Black people found hanging publicly since 2000. And so it's really important that we um, not just look case by case, although certainly answers into Lennon's death and others like it is important, but that we understand what's going on um, uh, in a more complex um, ways uh, to, to understand, um, one, how institutions are showing up around these cases, but to also get a better sense of the scope of what's going on now. And so I'm planning a um, either a short or what's more likely as a series um, on those cases as well. Has there been an increase since 2017? Um, I don't know if the increase has been since 2017. I haven't looked into that yet, but I'm really excited to look into that. I think it's so needed and that it hasn't been done means that there's so much information. One is that it's just, it's egregious, right? Is that if black folks are being killed in this way and this number, it's egregious that it hasn't been looked at, but it also is a wonderful opportunity to understand what's going on because if it is the case that black people are committing suicide by hanging themselves publicly in this way, which would certainly go against all of the um, taboos. Um, uh, it would be nice to know if it's a trend um, and just to have more information. And so uh, that's the thing that I'm most looking forward to is to finding out what's going on um, in, in as much as I can. Jackie, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. Our website is always in season film. Dot com, And on the website, you can learn when, we're, when we'll screen and what city will bring it to theaters between now and the end of November. Um, we'll be all around the country in San Francisco um, and other places, um, some of the other cities that I mentioned. And then the film will also be on PBS. I'm extremely excited about it screening on the Independent Lens series. It feels very much full circle for me, and that'll be on February 24th, 2020. But you can get updated on all of that as well as... Um, let us know if there are any groups or organizations that you think would benefit from bringing the screen, the film out to screen um, and for deep dialogues. And so, again, the website is always in seasonfilm.com. Jackie Olive, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it.
Bulging eyes and the twisted mouth Scent of magnolia Sweet and fresh Then the sudden smell of burning flesh Here is a fruit for the crow this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.